Hello, I'm Alan Schaller and welcome to Candela. Our guest today is David Yarrow. David joins my co-host Christopher Hooten and I speaking about his remarkable career in photography. David began his photographic journey recording iconic sporting events and was named Young Scottish Photographer of the Year at the age of 20 while studying at Edinburgh University. In the same year, 1986, he covered the World Cup in Mexico for the Times. His photo of Diego Maradona holding the trophy aloft was internationally celebrated. After university, David went into the world of finance for eight years, working as Director of Equities at NatWest Securities, before setting up his own hedge fund in 95. Throughout this period, he remained passionate about photography, and eventually his passion to address and highlight key environmental issues and geopolitical issues motivated his decision to photograph the natural world as a full-time profession. His photographs of wildlife have since become internationally renowned and highly collectible, and his work has been exhibited in the highest profile galleries around the world. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to Candela. I'm joined today by Alan Scheller, as always, and David Yarrow. David, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well indeed. Good, good. Delighted to have you on the show today. Thinking about this before we connected, uh, I was thinking one thing you and I have in common is um, a kind of background in newspapers. Obviously, we came up in, in a, a different time, but I was at The Independent. I believe you started your career doing some photography for The Times. I mean, I could fill volumes with <laughs> how kind of awry I think things have gone with journalism and, and with newspapers particularly. But I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about, I mean, obviously at a, a different time when it was slightly more viable and kind of what that landscape looks like now for someone who wants to pursue photography and also be able to put food in their mouths occasionally. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back to my early days in, in Fleet Street and uh, the first big event I did, an international event, was the World Cup in 86. And the Fleet Street guys there were were all, to me, massive characters and uh, big drinkers but they they held they held court and uh, I had the chance of uh, working with Hugh McIlvenny who sadly passed away uh, last year and to 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 me he was a god he was a Ayrshire's second best poet after Robbie Burns and he had the ear of Alec Ferguson Jock Steen Muhammad Ali whoever you name it they would speak to Hugh because he was uh, an authoritative voice. Uh, he, he was incredibly knowledgeable and he was a beautiful writer. Um, those were the days where the Holy Grail, if you were a photographer, was to, to perhaps get a job in Fleet Street. Um, mm. I interviewed recently perhaps the greatest photojournalist that Britain's ever produced, uh, Harry Benson. And Harry Benson got a job um, uh, with the Daily Sketch uh, I think on, and he was paid around about eleven, twelve thousand pounds, and came down to Glasgow to work for the Daily Sketch and did um, the Perfuma scandal, did a lot of the early sixties, and then left to with the Beatles to America and, and never came back. But mm. if you asked Harry then what was the best job he could get as a photographer in the world, it would be to work for Fleet Street. Uh, you look now, and there's so many anecdotes you can give or, or little bits of empirical uh, evidence in terms of the decline. My, my favorite one, I think, is that if you look at Sports Illustrated, obviously an American magazine, but in the old days, Sports Illustrated would probably have 30 staff photographers. And if, again, if you were a sports photographer in America to work for SI, there could be no better job. And, th and that job now is effectively gone. Um, they maybe have four staff photographers. If you look at Getty Images, and I've, I used to work for Getty, I did an Olympics for uh, effectively Getty. Uh, Getty became a private equity parcel to parcel deal in America. And if it wasn't for the family eventually retaking the business over, they would be in an awful amount of trouble because the price per picture has fallen so astronomically. Everyone's a photographer. All three of the people in this conversation are uh, photographers. Everyone's got the right to take as good a picture to, tomorrow as, as anyone else. It's also, I think, at a time when so many social media leads the news. And I was, I was a bit behind the curve on the idea that social media leads the news. 
I, I now get it. And if social media leads the news, then photographs taken on people's iPhones should also lead the news because they are going to be the most relevant, they'll be the most informed. And whether they're beautifully composed or not is irrelevant. It's the fact that they're there when something happens. Yeah. I think I think people still enjoy good imagery in, in news articles and to accompany it, but it's more just the the de- complete devaluation of it. And, you know, that's something that's happened across all, all art forms have felt it to some extent, you know, music massively, but photography as well is just getting getting paid. It doesn't make sense in the same way that it used to. Was, was there a particular moment where you were kind of decided that you were going to move in more of a, a fine art, which is a, a term we had a whole podcast about because we feel weirdly about that term, but like more in that direction as opposed to working with institutions? Uh, I think there were, there were many kind of roads to Damascus, if you like it, in terms mm. of that specific point. There was, there was one quite early on in my career in, in 1988. I did the Olympics in uh, Calgary, uh, Canada. And I was, I was, I was shit. I was not a good photographer. I was given the easiest things to photograph, like Eddie the Eagle, because he was the slowest ski jumper and stuff like that. But <laughs> I remember doing, um, the bobsleigh and you're trying to, because no one, no one can name a bobsleigh. So it's, and you can't see their faces anyway. So it's all about getting a picture with light and line and curves and using the shadows and whatever. And I thought I got a reasonably interesting picture which was kind of abstracty and and all about the composition rather than the face of the East German bobslayer because no one knows what his name is anyway. Um, mm. And then there were seven or eight other German photographers from Stern. And Stern in those days was such a big, was probably the biggest pair of any magazine in the world, um, Stern in Germany. And there was, there was probably seven or eight photographers that had the same picture as me. But my big moment... Uh, the realization came for me in uh, in 2010. I was, for whatever reason, I got obsessed with photographing great white sharks and I would go down to False Bay off Cape Town in, um, in their winter in June, July and try and get a picture of a great white attacking, predating, i.e. coming out of the water. And the chances of that, even with the best marine biologists, even with the best research and a huge amount of luck, are small. And I went down, um, I was there 11 times. I was in the, in the sea, I think, 28, 28 days. Um, and I finally got the picture. And I remember um, it was my last chance of getting the picture. And I remember going back to the False Bay and a little cafe and looking at it on my screen and the camera and realizing it was pin sharp. Mm. And I... I remember I got, I got quite emotional. I had a bottle of wine mm. on my own and had a bit of a teary eye. But, and I, I sent it to an agency and it was all around the world, all around the world. It was front page of the sun. It was not that that necessarily is the holy grail. but mm. And then I got my check probably three or four months after that. And I think my check was around about 17,000 quid. And my heart sunk and my head fell because I worked out it probably cost me 20,000 to take the picture. So I'd, yeah. ta- I'd taken this picture and I was three grand down on taking the picture. Well, yeah, that could have been like really dispiriting. It could have been, oh, I, you know, I, I've elected to do something that is going to be very low volume in terms of what I can produce. Has it, has it since, uh, like, did you keep the rights to the shot? Oh yeah. but oh. No, so, so what happened after that was then about, the guy from Texas called up and, and said, you're the, you're the guy that took the picture of the shark and I want one of those for my wall because I'm Jaws and the kind of rest is history. And uh, he, was called, he was an attorney called Jaws. And he said, how much for one of them? And I said, I don't know, seven or eight grand. Put it in a nice frame and stuff. And he said, I'm going to have three because he thought it was so cheap. And that was my epiphany. That was my Jerry Maguire moment. That was when I thought, I can see how you can monetize it. Mm. You know, when people want to be critical of me, and that's fine. I don't mind when you get criticism. It, it goes with the territory, I guess. Mm-hmm. There will be people that will say, oh, Yarrow, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a decent photographer, but he's a businessman. And I think, well, that's fine. If you want to throw that stone at me, that's fine. Because 
we've all got we've got kids to feed and kids to educate and uh, well there there are far many great photographers than there are who are great photographers and also have a business sense as well because uh my, my dad said to me, my dad was very uh, disapproving, really, of me getting into the arts in general. From a, He wanted me to be a lawyer. And uh, he said, and it stuck with me, he said, he said, whatever you do, don't have a house, don't set up the best house party in the world and invite no one to it. And I thought, because at the time I was doing music and I was in my room recording endlessly. And he was like, who's listening to this? I was like, no one yet. And he was like, well, that's, you know, it's crazy. And I, I eventually got what he meant and uh, yep. tried to take as much, if not more, uh, well, try and put a lot of understanding into how to get the work out there as well as trying to get the best compositions and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, so I think it's a good thing that, that, that you're talking about it quite openly, actually. Also, but I don't know why people are sort of sniffy about it in photography in a way that they never would be in film because in film it's a given that you need to be incredibly business-minded otherwise your script is never going to get made so um, i think it's 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 a funny thing about um still photography as a as a trade in that it enfranchises everyone well you'll know the numbers but i think 75 percent of the pictures that are taken every day are taken on iphones yeah and uh so i i um there are an awful lot of people every day taking photographs that think they're a photographer. Yeah. There are not many people taking film every day that think they're a filmmaker. Also, I, I um, there was an old saying in Fleet Street in the old days, have you ever met a happy photographer? There are quite a lot of miserable photographers around and they're either <laughs> complaining about the demand side of it or the supply side. And I know a lot of them. I know some really talented, really talented photographers. The problem they've got is that they don't know how to monetize their craft or they haven't really thought about it. Mm. And it's certainly not now through stock photography. Because if you take something like Getty, Getty have got, what, 100 staff photographers? About 100. Mm. Some of them work in really tough parts of the world, like Iraq and Libya and and Afghanistan and whatever. Yeah, but they're definitely not getting paid 17 grand for their great white photo either. It's a task, isn't it? Yeah. No, but if you take the 10,000 affiliated photographers for Getty, the top three or four of those 10,000, they're what they get every year for their share of their stock falls because the prices are just, just falling. I, the Sunday Times, the London Sunday Times, which has been an institution for me, the picture editor hung his boots up last week after 35 years at the Sunday Times and big, big loss for us because they were very, they were very generous to the amount of space they afforded our pictures. We never charged anything for them. That was the other thing. We, we didn't, we didn't want my father, uh, God rest his soul. He'd always say to me, how much did the Sunday Times pay you for that half page? <laughs> put you a picture? I said, dad, do you know how much a half-page advert in the Sunday Times would cost? They don't need to pay me anything. I just, yeah. it's, I, it's just great that they've given me half a page to the paper because the phone's going to ring tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny at the moment. I was doing a thing where I'm interviewing Alan in the Guardian, and like, well, obviously not, not doing it for kind of monetary reasons. No. It's just, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to do and a nice bit of PR, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, we can fight over the 150 quid that they, yeah, that yeah. they so generously, yeah, generously toss us. Um, question about, about the shark picture. Just one question. You, you said about how you, you saw that the photo was sharp and that you knew that you got it. A lot, I mean, hopefully people have taken the time to go and look at your pictures if they haven't seen them already. A lot of your photos seem to me to be like ones of hippos or ones of zebra or something like where you can, you've, you've seen them and you've had time to prepare and you've, yeah. you know, been able to maybe pre-focus. I don't know how you work and, 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 and catch a shot with a shark. How the hell do you, where do you point the, the lens? Like, and, and how do you know, you know, do you shoot at F-16 and, and pray that, that it's in a, a 10 meter radius or like, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't know how to approach it. It's a very good question. And the answer is before I went out, I didn't know how you'd approach it either. When um, the shark sees uh, a baby seal and it's the baby seals they go for, 
and this all happens in the sort of one hour after sunrise for for reasons only no one really knows. No one knows why it happens in the first hour after sunrise. You'll get this frisson of activity around a boat with a 17-foot or 15-foot monster trying to catch the seal. And the seal's going to be bouncing around the water, going to be bouncing out of the water because the seal knows he's safer or she's safer out of the water than in the water. So what you're... You're just following the seal the whole time. You're right. not following. You don't know where the, quite where the shark is. Uh, it was in the autofocus has improved enormously, but I had two frames and the frame a tenth of a second before the frame I got, the shark's mouth is massively open like a cartoon shark and the seal is flying through the mouth and it's not quite pin sharp. To me, we're brutal on, on, on focus, and it's the most important. If, if photography was a language, focus would be the most important verb. And something is either emphatically in focus or it's not. Yeah. There's, no, there's no, it's nearly. And um, I think my sports photography days taught me that, uh, a lot about that. I wasn't very good at it then. It was before, it was before also focus. You know, when I did the World Cups or... Um, European Championships, um, you, there was no autofocus mechanism. You had to do a thing called follow focus. So you, you moved the diaphragm of the camera um, uh, as the player moved. And that was... Yeah, tracking with your, with your hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's not... Uh, those were not easy times. There are some people that are very skilled at it. It's been like um, uh, being a welder or something. It's a very specific skill. Autofocus now... Is is easier, and what you need, what I where I was lucky there was that the light was strong, and autofocus always works better in good light. Clearly, mm. but yeah, there are so many things to consider for a shot like that, like what direction the light's in, and you can't control that because you're going to have you're having to move the camera wherever the yeah. seal's going. It, it must have been quite stressful. Yeah, it's in, it's intense, and it's all at about ten past seven in the morning, and uh, <laughs> you know the the. Um, after the picture was printed, I got a call from the police in Musenberg, and uh, which is a town near Cape Town. And about three weeks after the picture, a surfer had been killed by a shark. And they wanted to eliminate my shark from their inquiries. So they wanted <laughs> to see the, the, the teeth marks. And I never thought a picture of mine would ever be used in a police investigation for a death of a surfer, but they wanted to find out <laughs> wow. whether that shark was the shark that, that killed the, the surfer. So they had a load, a load of sharks in a police lineup and they were like, right, we can scratch that one off. <laughs> like, <laughs> like in the usual suspect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can you open your mouth, please? <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, so I, I another thing I wanted to, while I was, whilst we're talking about the actual picture making side of it, so I know you use wide angles a lot, and you like being in in there with the sh with the shot rather than you know making the equivalent frame but with a telephoto lens where it compresses stuff. And I, I, I'm I'm the same. I, I use a 24 prime as my main kind of go to for things, and I like to go up to people. I shoot people, um, but how does that work? Like like some of your shots, like with lions and and bears, where they're definitely wide angle shots. Um, are those done? Are you there taking those shots or do you put them on on uh, like trigger release or, you know, are you remotely shooting these with wides to get? Because you get such an intimate uh, feeling off these shots. I think that's what differentiates them from mm. a lot of kind of more classic Nat Geo, for, you know, stuff uh, where you feel like it's almost like portraits of animals, you know, rather than just nature photography. And with hippos too, because they're angry motherfuckers. You don't want to be too close. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to be close to a hippo. No, I, I, I had, I've had two bad moments, uh, in the last, in the last 15 years, I've had three moments. Um, one when a, my plane came down in the Sahara, um, that wasn't in, in a place called, uh, Mauritania, uh, which wasn't much fun. Uh, so we crash landed in the desert and then, Jeez. and then there was a gap of about 11 years where nothing really happened, which was lovely. Um, there was a few moments with guns in South Sudan, but last year I was photographing killer whales uh, on a raft in Siberia in the waters, and 
trying to get after I got my shot, I was so cold. I tried to swivel on the raft to get back onto the boat. And I wasn't wearing a wetsuit. I was just wearing sort of a ski, ski clothing and a life jacket. And I put my knees in the wrong position in the raft and I toppled over and went into the sea, um, with a, with my lenses around my neck. Um, oh, and, disaster. um, it, I, uh, I thought that was it. And luckily that I was, I had a rope, um, and the Nor- Norwegians winched me on board, but I got hypothermia and, um, uh, a lesson I say to my kids, you know, I think the most humiliating moment of my life uh, when I went to the hospital in the Arctic Circle and they asked me to take my clothes off and I had hypothermia, but worse than that, um, my penis had actually inverted. And when I was <laughs> na- naked in front of these nurses, I didn't, I didn't have a penis at all. <laughs> and, and, and they were asking whether the whale had taken the where the whale had taken my, my dick. Um, yeah, was, you, you, you can feel no shame now for the rest of your life. Like you would never ever feel that. No, to that yeah, point that's about as bad as it gets. That, yeah, that's, that's, no, that's no, quite I, a good I feeling. I can look at it with pride ever since that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, then, oh my goodness! Then, um, but earlier on, I know we're deviating from your question, but um, with the hippo. <laughs> It's uh, the best way to photograph a hippo is below it. And the best way to photograph a hippo is him charging you. Uh, and you've got to be on the ground. If you're photographing a hippo from a Jeep, it doesn't work. And I had my moment about five weeks ago. And I was with my son in Tanzania. We were ver- one of the few people in there. And we're in a park towards the DRC, uh, renowned for crocodiles and hippos. And this hippo came at me. And... Obviously, I want to get the picture of the hippo as close to me as possible, <laughs> but it, there's a trade-off because they will kill you and they'll snap you in half. Um, and I waited. I think it's quite a decent picture, actually, but my son still thinks I should have waited maybe a half a second more. I had rocks to protect me um, uh, between me and the hippo, but, but when the hippo is charging you, you, it's not within your uh, cognitive processing to look behind you to see how far he is. So you're just running like hell. And I fell over the second set of rocks. Cameras went everywhere. And I thought the next thing I looked around and there'd be this big mouth. But luckily, the only big mouth was my son laughing his head off because the hippo <laughs> had stopped about 30 yards beforehand. But I've, <laughs> I've got a little bit of hippophobia now. They are, lions don't scare me, because by and large, in most countries, lions will go the other way. They'll be scared of you. But to go back to your question, um, if you're going to photograph a beautiful woman, and I've been very lucky in my work to photographing a beautiful beautiful woman in in Africa in two weeks' time, but what I've been working with Cara Delevingne or Cindy Crawford or whoever it might be, I want to photograph her very close because you said yourself, the wide angle is the best. I think the 35 is a great portraiture lens. 28, still a great portraiture lens. 85 was always traditionally seen as being a wonderful portrait lens, but it's not as immersive in a kind of Breaking Bad way. Breaking Bad is in the TV series, which I think really brought forth in our mindset the power of immersive immersive cinematography. Mm -hmm. So... If um, if I'm going to be photographing a woman with or a man with a 35 mil lens, that should be my default lens for an animal. Why would you choose a different lens for an animal to a person? Well, the answer, the obvious answer is either regulation or safety. So if you can get around the the problem of safety and you can get around the population of, of re- problem of regulation, then you should do it. I mm. I am. Um, in, in two weeks, three weeks' time, I will be lying on the ground six foot from the biggest elephant in the world. And if he has a change in mindset, uh, I'm dead. But I put trust in the people that I'm with, uh, the ranger who knows him, and I think the elephant knows me, that, that triangle of trust that I can do that. Yeah. Uh, do you think also that part of you is a little bit like, well, 
if if I'm gonna go, that's like uh, I'd be going. You know, the old cliche of I'm going doing what I love. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of devil may care to putting yourself in those situations. I'd much rather go that way than watching Scotland play football. Like I nearly, I, <laughs> exactly. I, wanted, I wanted to shoot myself last night watching Scotland play football. So I'd much rather go. Uh, I'd much rather go that way than. A, but I think it would be kind of. I've got two kids, and yeah. we we play with jeopardy. We like a lot of people that are, are storytellers. We I never really put myself in harm's way. Our, our my most dangerous moments have always been with people. Because people can do three things that animals can't do. They can get drunk, they can be high, and they can have a gun. And in, in, in places like parts of Ethiopia, parts of South Sudan, even parts of Nairobi, um, those, those are my da- more dangerous moments with, with people with guns. Animals mostly, other than that hippo moment, um, I'm okay with with polar bears. We we really struggled with polar bears, and uh, because I just couldn't get close. Uh, and the idea of photographing a polar bear from a hundred yards away didn't really cut it for me. There's nothing artistic about it. It's just pulp. It's it's stock photography. And we used to travel around all these supposed wonderful destinations for photographing polar bears. And you'd be either photographing from seven foot up in a vehicle looking down. Well, that's a shocking way to photograph anything. Why? I mean, there's, there's no skill in that. And eventually, it's, by, it's an iterative process by learning how, to, how you get it wrong. You finally get it right. And we found this little uh, fishing village, Inuit fishing village. Of course, you know, in, these, in 2020, the word... What we 30 years ago, we used to describe it as an Eskimo village, but the, obviously the word now is a native, native Inuit, uh, a village. And this is on the north slope of Alaska and near where there's a lot of oil, Prudhoe Bay, you might have heard of where there's a lot of oil. And it's really the, the, the top of the world. And there you can be in a kind of container cabin, like a Maersk or a Tiphook container cabin. And you can look out of your little window and there'll be 20 polar bears within about 40 yards of you just going up and down the high street. So I, I met this, uh, Inuit who had one tooth. He just had one. It's like that chat up line in Glasgow, nice tooth. He just had one tooth <laughs> in the middle of his, in the middle of his face. And, uh, everyone, he described everyone, including us as a cocksucker. Everyone was a cocksucker. Yeah. But, we just accepted the fact that that's what we were, paid him a few more dollars, and he told us how he could get very close to polar bears, which was basically to cover yourself in chocolate. And then if you were uh, upwind from the polar bear, so that the polar bear could smell you, he would come towards you. But the Inuit fisherman had a way then of getting away from the polar bear. So I've got this enormous polar bear coming right towards me because I've spread millionaire shortbread all over my face (laughs) surreal (laughs) moments well i mean i know you did just say that like yeah and you did just say that you know working with humans has its challenges because they're often drunk or high or whatever or have an ak-47 but at the same time you've recently obviously been playing with working with actors and models and stuff i imagine that's a bit of a, a walk in the park you know you don't usually have to slather yourself in chocolate unless you've pivoted to a very different kind of photography you know usually they might be 45 minutes late but that's the most you're going to have to ever deal with compared to what goes into waiting for you know <laughs> a great white shark to breach the wave i think when we work with um well-known people the pressure goes at 180 degrees because when when you're um if i'm working in east africa a day shoot in east africa um will cost us if we've got the crew there behind the scenes people and and whatever i think our cost of production per day is going to be maybe five or six thousand dollars maybe a little bit more if you spread the cost of the flights or whatever so and also you're dealing with nature and so you can come back at the end of the day and go well that was a shit day nothing happened i didn't see anything six grand down the drain but that's nature so you can't give yourself a tough time if you go from that to 
a stage shot. We had a stage shot that we did in um, in LA in October last year. Um, and the night before, I'm in the bar with our team. And I was going, you know, tomorrow is going to cost us $175,000. And they go, David, you, you better not, you better not fuck up. You better, <laughs> you better remember to put a, a card in your camera or whatever that, cause so it's a totally different pressure because at the end of that day, when you've got that amount of cost, if you have screwed up where everything's ostensibly under your control, then mm. that's an entirely different kind of pressure. And I quite like that pressure because yeah. the only person you can blame is yourself. Well, also, I think, you know, you've, you've, you've shrewdly tapped into something there because I, I was saying this, I've said this to Alan before, it's like so much expense goes into, into films, you know, in terms of production design and, and, and locations and set, just absolutely untold work by so many people. But then traditionally in, in photography, you know, either it's completely candid stuff, in which case the overheads are like nothing, or, you know, maybe there's a little bit of, you know, if it's something for Vogue, there's a little bit of kind of work involved in a little bit of costume. But no one's really kind of staged, you know, got in huge talent and amazing kind of locations to stage a shot to the degree and to the quality that you would a film still, which is interesting to me. So it makes a lot of sense that you've started kind of trying to do that a little bit. You know, if you, if you, um, if people turn around to me and my mates turn around and say, Dave, um, why can't other people do what you're doing? What's your competitive advantage? If I was as stupid enough or as arrogant enough to turn around and say, my competitive advantage is talent. What a load of cock. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I like to think that I like to think I'm quite capable. I'll make mistakes and you get better as a photographer as you get older. Um, and, you know, Cartier-Bresson said, your first 1,000 photographs will be your worst. And I, I'm 54 now, and, and I think I, you get better because you get more emotionally intelligent every every year. Um, <laughs> and um, I, 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 our competitive advantage is our, our contacts, our people on the ground, and the fact that we can, if, if, if we get an idea, and we got an idea about a... a we got an idea yesterday, uh, and we then work out what the cost of executing that idea is. And I think the cost of executing that idea might be a hundred thousand dollars. And we'll just go and say, let's do it. Let's go. We don't need to have a board meeting with anyone. We don't need to get permission from, um, Vanity Fair or Vogue. We just go and do it. And if we mm. get, and if we get it wrong, um, it goes through the PL on the Monday. Like if with Netflix, and I, I've been, I've almost to the point of being on the spectrum, um, <laughs> looked at their business model because their business, their business model is fascinating. And I know it's got a lot of a, attention recently because of Harry and Meghan and all that bullshit. But, um, when they produce something like The Crown, um, which after, as you guys know, um, after, promotion and, and and the promotional tours and whatever is probably around between 10 and 11 million an episode or and therefore on that basis around about 100 million a series they will amortize that over eight years they will so they will take the the cost of that over an eight-year life because they will say we'll be getting the benefits back from the crown over eight years we will take the hit of that 100,000 next Monday morning on the PL. And that really focuses the mind as to whether, because authenticity is one thing. There's two, there's two filters in our work. One is authenticity. Authenticity is the bedrock of everything all of us are going to be doing post COVID. We're living in a world where you've got to, you've got to be authentic. Don't be going backwards to what was done before. So that's an important filter. But the second filter, which is is more onerous is um commerciality you can be authentic everyone can go and do something really authentic but if no one wants is no one's interested in it well then it becomes a vanity project and that uh, commerciality filter is a much more demanding filter if we if we've got a hundred ideas thrown at us 10 might get through the authenticity uh filter i think one gets through 
the commerciality filter and then we focus on that. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, and going back to what you were saying about you, you staging these shoots yourself and on your own back, it's a little bit why I think one of the reasons podcasts have been so popular and one of the good things about how we're not now all beholden to these gatekeepers and, you know, if you if you can somehow get the resources together, you can make this stuff happen yourself. And, like, if, you know, if me and Alan had gone to a publication or whatever and said, we're going to do a podcast, it's going to be about cinematography and photography, some fucking beard-stroking person in a scarf would have been like, yeah, but could it be more like this? Or I don't know if I see the the synergy between cinematography and, and photography. Yeah, and we're definitely cutting the bit about the inverted penis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's getting cut. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's this, they're just so in the kitchen. And, you know, that's not always a bad thing. You need to. Are you, you going to cut that? You can't cut that. I'm proud. No, no, no way. No not. way. That's going to be in the actual, yeah, yeah. in the caption of the whole episode. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's, ni- it's nice now that you, you're in a place where if you believe in, in something, you can just do it. Whereas before you were so, so beholden well, to it, someone saying it's yes. A, it is a fine balance because I, I, I think that. A lot of people getting into filmmaking, well, into photography in particular. I, I don't like talking about filmmaking because I don't make many films, but I, I, I shoot. Photo- I, I definitely take pictures, and um, I've got. I've spent the whole time trying to double down on on a style and make it more and more niche and more and more recognisable as my own style and that kind of thing. And I think that that's what people, if they don't have that, that's like the kind of the end. That's the 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 key to the first door is if you don't have your own thing uh, these days like you said, with so many people doing photos and able to take good, decent photos as well. That's the, that's something that you have to, uh, to understand first. And then once you've got your own thing, then yeah, it's, uh, you're in a much better position to go out and actually produce things of interest to people. Cause otherwise you just forever end up someone's bitch being like, this is what you, you know, you end up like a commercial photographer who's just tries to emulate, you know, or do that kind of David Yarrow thing or do, do this <laughs> kind of thing. Or, you know, if you, if you look at, um, and I'm sure Alan with your street photography, People would, if they saw your work, the, the holy grail is for people to see a picture without your name attached to it, and then they say, "I know who took that picture." That, yeah, that, that is that is something we all reach for as as a goal. If you go and you look at, say, Steven Spielberg, and you you look at scenes from, uh, and this is just me talking because. He's one of my heroes, probably is my hero. Um, scenes from even some of his more recent work, like The Post, uh, about uh, the Washington Post. And, and you go into the newspaper room. There were scenes where he's using a wide-angle lens and you've got that layered narrative. Mm. So you've got the people in front of the screen and the action behind the screen. And I've seen that throughout his career. And Scorsese does it well clearly and, and you see those same scenes in the, in, the, in the Wolf of Wall Street where you have that layered narrative uh, and it comes so naturally to them both that you haven't you, there's not just one thing going on the picture on the picture there are two things going on in the picture there's the foreground and there's the background and they they complement each other mm. I think image when you're using a wide-angle lens the great danger of it is that the foreground is loose uh, and that's true in motion picture and it's true in stills as well. That mm. to me, if you use a wide angle, it's a bit like, um, a cocktail party. If you go to a cocktail party or a wedding reception and you go into the, the, the main area of the wedding reception and you have to look for 50 yards to see someone serving you a drink, you immediately go shit party. Whereas if you walk into the room, and within one yard, there's a, there's a waiter with a drink. You go, this is going to be a good party, and that's yeah. that's the way photographs should be as well. You you must have something right in front of you as soon as you look into that picture. I'm reminded of a, my photo, Harry Benson. I talked earlier on this great shot of Andy Warhol, straight the and Bianca Jagger. The first thing you see is a huge Andy Warhol head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm uh, very conscious of that that st- style and the continuity in the style. And if someone said was asked talking about me because they were bored, I would hope they would say David's very conscious 
of the importance of layered narratives. That one layer of narrative is not a, is not enough. You have to have layers of narrative, uh, and and painters did that as well. You you look at um, Rembrandt. You go to that museum in Amsterdam. You can see people looking at that picture for forty five minutes because there's mm. so much going on. I totally agree. It's, it's almost like there's a hook that drags you in and then you stare at that for a while and then and then, and then, and, 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 then it, and then you're invited to look around and then there are more details and more things and and yeah i i, I totally totally get that and and especially with, with sad I, I think it is a sad thing that now that we use phones primarily as our way of exploring people's photography and filmmaking um it's even more important to have a picture that is actually has a point and is you know quite impactful because uh, you're looking at it on that on such a small scale uh, i feel like the bigger you print the the more you know by definition the you know the the details are more apparent so it's almost like i don't know i was going to ask you do you are there some things that you okay to have online that you that you well are there some things that you show in in books or in exhibitions that you don't feel so happy with putting on on instagram for example is that something that you think about at all I, I think everything online is secondary to the real experience. Sex, for instance, we can start in uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, uh, photographs, the, your online uh, experience, if that's your first experience of a piece of art, it's, it's never great. It's not, a, it's not a good place to start, but needs must. We work with yeah. a, a company that allows people to blow it up to the, the, the biggest size you can imagine to see the amount of detail because detail is so important in our photographs. I um, I had a moment, all artists, I don't know about you guys, but all artists have a degree of insecurity. Um, I would worry if I wasn't, I'm, I'm, I'm very tough on myself, um, but I'm certainly not complacent and I am insecure to the extent that I, I always think I could do better. Um, and someone said to me about eight years ago, David, are you sure about the integrity of your prints, your big prints? And my big prints, as you probably know, they're the size of a table tennis table or maybe yeah. a bit bigger. I said, well, I'm, I said, yeah, they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and, the, and this, the girl that asked me, she studied Dutch masters and was off to Maastricht the next day. And I thought, what do you know? But, all night, I worried about <laughs> what she'd said. And I, I knew who, at the time, someone that I can not compete, because you don't compete, but someone that was a, a champion in my space. I knew where they got their prints done, their black and white prints, which was <laughs> Los Angeles. So I, I got up in the morning and flew to Los Angeles and went, and I, 24 hours Previously, I had no idea I was going to Los Angeles. I just got on a plane. I didn't. I didn't pack. I just had a, a briefcase and my computer with a couple of files. And I went to the labs and off uh, Venice Boulevard in Culver City in LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, "You listen. You don't know me, uh, but um, is there any chance I've just flown from Britain to see you?" And they're going. Daft Brit arrived, mm -hmm. and I, I said, "Can you?" Can you work on this file? I'll go to the beach, have a few drinks in the King's Head in Santa Monica, best football bar in the world, and um, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back in six hours' time and see what you've done. How much is it going to cost? And luckily they said, well, we're not very busy today, otherwise we might have asked you to join the queue, but we'll do it for $1,100. $1, so I went, I went to the Santa Monica, had a few drinks, took in some sunshine, and then went back six hours later. And they had the picture rolled out on one of their desks. And I looked at it, and I went, oh, my goodness. It was just a transformation of what I had been doing. Mm. And so ever since then, we've always printed in, in Los Angeles. Um, I think they are the best in the world at what they do. Is it and, digital? Uh, is it a DSI? Is it that kind of printing? Digital silver imaging? Do they use that technology? Do you know? Because I I did a show with Leica in LA, 
um, in West Hollywood in February. I know the, I know the, I know the showroom. Yeah, it's Beverly awesome. Boulevard, yeah. Yeah, beautiful light coming in through there. And I, I was freaking out because I get all my stuff printed by Metro in London. And they said they didn't want to pay for the prints to be made there and then ship. They said, we've got a great team who do it out there. I'm not sure if it's the same lab as the one you used, but I remember going to LA and seeing them being hung up. And I was like, well, you know, because we black and for people listening who haven't tried printing before, like black and white photography, like, can really fall on its ass if it's not printed beautifully. Or, or at least if you looked at two prints, one that's been done really well and the same image that's not been done so well, you can. there's a huge difference, like range of how impactful the image can look. And anyway, I, I saw them and I was, yeah, completely blown away. Uh, I thought, geez. Taking a picture and then getting, g- going from there to um, having a beautiful piece of work hanging on someone's wall is a food chain that the photographer should leave that food chain as soon as possible and hand mm. over to the experts. I mm. only, I only rejoin the food chain when it comes to putting on shows and, and uh, speaking at shows, whatever. And then I'm, I hang, I stand on the shoulders of giants that are just so brilliant a piano it has a lot of keys and there's some pianists that just play in the middle of the keyboard and then there are pianists that go from one side of the keyboard to the other a black and white print should try and use all those keys in the keyboard and mm. from the rich blacks rich black is such an important color mm. matisse said it's taken me 30 years to work out the rich blacks the most important color in the world Giorgio Armani thought that. Tom Ford thought that. Andy Warhol said, my favorite two colors in the world are black and white. And <laughs> so they're two incredibly important colors. Mm. But the stuff in between is massively important as well. I think if, if I'd started my career and said, I'm going to just work in color and that's it, I would be living in a bedroom flat in... Um, I don't want to name anywhere because then people that live there will go, you're having a go at my place. So I'm going to go for my hometown of Port Glasgow in Scotland. I would be, I would be, because it's very tough with colour. I think colour is a tough medium for, for fine art photography. Um, black and white, because it's perception, not reality. Mm. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And also because it lends a degree of timelessness to it as well. If I, if I work purely in colour, I think uh, I'd be struggling. For listeners, it was Paris that David besmirched. He, he went on a whole rant about how, how much of a shithole it is and we had to cut it. So just, just keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm kidding, obviously. <laughs> but no, yeah, the, the whole thing with True Blacks, I mean, that's so huge in film as well. It's all about pulling those out. Um, well, to speak to a slightly different part of your anecdote and potentially derail the conversation, um, I liked a bit about playing the daft, uh, the daft Brit because uh, that that does get you very far in America, doesn't it? I've, I'm a huge America file, so and I, I have a sense that you are a little bit too. I mean, I think that the, several things. Uh, it is vast. This the, the next two months will be extraordinary period in history for America, and I I think when we are in the UK. And we listen to the news from America, whether it be, um, forest fires in California or whether it be COVID or whether it be the shenanigans in Washington. There is a, and I hear it all the time that you get the, the these comments saying, Oh, well, America, it's finally, they've got, they've got their, their comments up. This will be their the toughest hours. And. My goodness, they're struggling. Uh, what a tough time to be in America. I, t- I would turn around and say, what a load of balls. I mean, last week, the value of Apple exceeded the value of the whole of the FTSE 100 in the UK. <laughs> so one American company exceeded the whole value of our top 100 quoted companies. And then after Apple... Well, we all know what, what we've got behind it. We've got Google, we've got Facebook, we've got Amazon. We've got so many different companies coming up behind. 
their 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 world the the world they have in terms of that relationship between education, private equity, uh, entrepreneurship, technological excellence, they're stretching further ahead of us. And if I sometimes get asked by Americans, what is what is your favorite city for doing for selling what you do outside London? What what, what what's the best city for you outside London? And is it Edinburgh? Is it is it Leeds? Is it Manchester? Is it uh, Glasgow? Uh, what what is that city? And I don't think a lot of people know what that city is for in 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 the art world. Clearly, there in Edinburgh is a wonderful art heritage, and and there's more and more art up north. But what we do know is whatever that city is in terms of investment in arts and culture. We think there are 35 cities in North America that exceed the amount of investment in art and culture in to UK's second city. So when people are turning around and saying, oh, it's a tough time, yeah, sure, it's going to be the first week of November is going to be fascinating. And I would imagine that there's going to be whatever happens, it's not going to be a particularly fun week one way or other. But the, the economy for and the investment in art and the talent, it's the place to be. Uh, LA, people turn around to me and say, why do you like LA? Well, it keeps you on your toes. You realize, whatever the analogy of making sure you're the thickest person in the room is, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. If you're the thickest person in the room, the only way is up. And and there's a line from Steve Martin, the comedian. He said, uh, he was asked about LA and the, the vapidity and the one-dimensional pursuit of career and money gain and whatever. And he said, he said, the trick with LA is to be good enough that they can't ignore you. And that, that is, that would be on my office wall as to one of the most important prompts you can give someone. Be good enough that they can't ignore you. Cause yeah. they, yeah, the, one of the great things about America as well is it's like, um, and if it, if if one of those cities doesn't work for you, there's always another. It's like a nation of nomads, you know. There's you you don't really encounter many people who are like I lived in Brighton for a couple of years, and then I was up in Manchester for a while, and now I'm in London, You're whereas so in the US, right. I don't think I know a single American person who spent their entire life in one city. They're always like they've bounced oh. between San Fran and the East Coast, and then they go out into the desert for a while, and I love that. It's just so right. Is it is absolutely extraordinary. So we spent some time in Denver, and then we went up to Seattle, <laughs> and then we went to Chicago. And can you imagine people saying, "We we so we did London, then we went to Stoke on Trent." <laughs> but um, we had we had our our first uh, big city that we tried to make some inroads to because we'd done the we'd done our homework it was Dallas, and Dallas has a big arts. Um, Focus. They've got a big arts week. It's probably only second to Miami in terms of the amount of attention that's given to art outside um, New York and LA. And uh, we spent a week in Dallas in 2014 trying to build connections. Mm. Uh, and our final event was uh, uh, at a hotel where I was giving a speech and, and two people turned up. And, and one of the two people was my uh, local Texas PR girl. And she was taken off to rehab halfway through my speech. So it actually turned out there was only one person listening to me who I think was in our team. <laughs> so we, and we went back to the airport uh, on the way back to London. And again, we'd probably spent $100,000 that week in Dallas. And I hadn't sold a single picture. And I thought, what on earth are we doing here? And then... We got some leads, got some backers, some people that would back us. And not this year, but uh, when we do, we are going back this year, but in a normal year, uh, we would get a 1,000 people a night. So it's gone from having one person to a 1,000, but you just never must give up in those places. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's a bit of an odd question. In terms of becoming a successful photographer, in the way that you've done it, how how much, uh, if we're going to say out of 10, how much is uh, the, the importance of the actual photograph itself versus the grind and the connections side of it? Because I think it's 
literally like 20% photos, 80% everything else probably. Yeah, well, that's how you have these photos. And the photos, and the photos have yeah. to be bloody good. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What, what, what do you think, David? Um, no, I, I, would, I wouldn't agree with that. I think to grab people's attention and hold the attention of third-party advocates, because what you need is third-party advocates. You need... You cannot sell your own work. You need people that are respected as art dealers to give their their third-party affirmation. And there are four or five people in America that turn me down time and time again. One in particular turned me down time and time again. And when you've, when you've gone to this place with your portfolio and they go, thanks, but no thanks... And then you go back to Miami and then you fly back to London and you think, what am I doing? And there's two reactions you can have to it. One is you can think that he's wrong. Um, and the other is to think that he's absolutely right and you've just got to get better. Um, I, I, my, career, my career changed on one picture. Um, and I tell this to a, a, a lot of people that come and ask me for advice and the picture was taken in South Sudan during the Civil War in 2014. And um, I took it on, I think, the 27th of December. And um, I knew, I knew I'd done a lot of homework and what I was trying to get. The picture had depth. It had a lot of narrative to it. No one had been up there before. It was too dangerous to go up there. A lot of guns around. And um, as soon as I had a preconception in my mind, you know, Ansel Adams always said some people make pictures, some people take them. I, I'm very much a maker of pictures because I do have that preconception. Um, doesn't remove the chance of spontaneity. Uh, but before that picture, it didn't matter who my connections were. Didn't matter. Uh, I, was an, I had nothing. I had no cards in my hand. That was the picture that got me the chance to have a platform. And I do think you need you need that picture so that you, for dealers, uh, there's an opportunity cost of not working with you. Success is 99% failure. I know that, I know it's such a cliche, but it's only by failing and failing that you, there's very few people that I know, don't know about you, that have, from the word go, succeeded. Spielberg, probably. Um, but there are not many people that just from right from the gecko, yeah, pick up a film camera or a still camera and succeed. Yeah, it's about having the the persistence in failing, isn't it? That's the that's the really the bar that a lot of people can't quite meet, understandably, because they, they find it hard to take all those failures. Um, well, well since, since you've um you've mentioned Spielberg a couple of times now, and we um. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we've heard a few photographers on the show by this point and they've, some of them are sort of mentioned like slight passing interest in film. A couple of them have sort of dabbled in it, but most of them not super interested, but I get the impression that you're a little bit more into movies. So, um, how it'd be interesting to hear just kind of a, what you're into and B whether it's influenced you or not at all in terms of your still photography. I mean, the answer is it's a massive influence to me. Um, I'm, I like to think I'm a visual person. I'm kind of screwed if I'm not. Um, and a lot of my prompts are from other people. I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about in that. Mm. Ansel Adams said, he said, photography is a, not about a camera. It's about the music you listen to, the poems you've read, the loves you've had, and the photographs of others. So he was telling you that, it's a kind of outer manifestation of your inner soul, but it's also about blatant plagiarism. He said, it's fine. You can go and see and copy. And uh, I, I was having a glass of wine and feeling particularly useless in um, West Hollywood, overlooking LA, looking for an idea. And I went to the girl at the hotel and I said, have you got any DVDs? Cause I haven't, for whatever reason, my Netflix isn't working. What DVDs have you got? And she said, yes, we do have some DVDs. And you got the box set. And the first DVD I saw was the front cover of Ridley Scott's Thelma Louise. And it's got the picture of Gina Davis and Susan Saradon with Monument Valley in the background with a car. And I looked at it and I went, 
of course, that's what you do. You photograph America through the windscreen of a car. And that one little prompt from Ridley Scott then gave rise to about 20 projects we've had of taking the great iconic scenes of America and then having a car in the foreground with the windscreen taken out and then having interesting things in the foreground uh, in the car. And so it's a bit like James Corden's carpool karaoke, except it's not nearly quite as fun as <laughs> like a still. Um, I'm, I'm enormously influenced by it. I am... Um, my favorite line uh, on, on movies and film directors is from Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks was asked, what was it that made Spielberg the cinematographer of our generation and probably the next generation, the one before? And Tom Hanks said, it's because he has a, a fluency in the language of what it takes to elicit an emotional reaction. And that is such an important sentence. He has a fluency in the language of what it takes to elicit an emotional reaction. He had it in Jaws, and he had, he's had it all the way through since Jaws. Without emotion, photography is nothing. I yeah. want, I want to, for me, I want people to go into the shows that I have and look at pictures of animals and cry. That gives a shiver down my spine when I see people looking at one of my pictures and they don't know I've come around the back and I can just see tears coming down someone's face. That's that's the goal. And that's what he always did. Yeah, yeah, he does. I think, to put it in a way less poetic way, I think he's just one of the most consistent in terms of his skill. Like, if, if there were there were top trumps for directors, Spielberg is just kind of, he hits it all across yeah. the board, you know, in terms of the storytelling and understanding the visuals, his technical knowledge, he's just, he's working with actors, he's just kind of, He's very, very a well-rounded filmmaker. But it's interesting what you say about, you know, watching DVDs and getting ideas. I actually can relate to it sort of since sort of, well, we've been in coronavirus period. Obviously, I've been doing a lot less directing because their film sets aren't really a thing. And I'm going to be writing mostly for the best part of a year, a, a book. and yeah, two, years. two years. Yeah, and I, um, I find it so hugely helpful to read other great authors and it doesn't. It doesn't feel like I don't then plagiarize them, but just kind of getting we all yourself. Do. We, I think it's in, like osmosis. Yeah, it's I osmosis, and it gets your. It. it gets you like it gets gives you the, the fizz and gets your like your your blood moving. I think when to engage yourself with yeah with other good. stuff. I think I think I think it's important to uh, yeah I, to emulate to learn. That's a really good starting point, and then eventually something new comes along, or 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 or, or you like you fuse together. You emulate. You have like no one has the same influences. I think, you know, because say, I love uh, Giacometti as a sculpture, for example, and you might combine that with a bit of Lancel Adams, with a little bit of this, and then you end up with this, like, slightly different way of, mm. and, and, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, producing a truly original image or film or anything like that, I think that's an extremely hard thing to quantify. Yeah, we're all, we're like, all a pastiche is, of our yeah, influences. You can trace way, it we? back to everything, yeah. almost. Indeed, indeed. Cool. Well, I mean... It's been great to have you on today, David. Um, for people who are familiar with and, and love your images and have seen them online and would like to have the experience of seeing them on a massive wall, which is presumably, I've not had that opportunity, but I'm sure it is a, is a different experience and a lot more rich. Um, well, is this going to be a thing that's... Is, <laughs> is it done galleries or are they hopefully are we going to be back and that's going to be a thing that people can do again, do you think, soon? I was speaking to someone uh, yesterday about how this all plays out and, and you get all these economic expressions like, uh, a V shaped recovery or an L <laughs> or an L, an L that's just flat or a K. I've heard K as well. <laughs> I've heard someone describe a K. I, I think it's K and the K is that whenever this passes, it's just going to amplify the winners and losers. There'll be some people that, so that the, they're not going to make it and slip away, which is the lower half of the K. And then there'll be people that are able to take advantage, which is the upper mm. upper side of the K. And I think, yeah. which is not a particularly happy thing, but I think it will exaggerate trends in terms of competitive advantage and mm. vi viability as a business. And that's true of whether you be a restaurant or whether you be a um, uh, an airline. There will just be m more winners and losers, and the losers will go down. Um, I've, I, 
how does that affect us in the gallery world? Galleries, galleries are, are a marginal business most of the time because once they've paid the artist 50%, um, they've paid their rent, uh, they've put on shows. I mean, if you start the principle of, let's say you're a gallery and you take a million dollars a year, um, and let's say your gallery's in uh, Mayfair or Upper East Side, um, well, the first thing is you've got to half that million because half of it's going to the artist. So you're down to half a million. If you're in those locations, you're probably going to have rents and rates of 200,000 to 250,000. Then you've got your staff and then you've got to pay yourself. So they were marginal at that kind of number anyway. Um, yeah. And our, our biggest issue that we've had as a business in COVID and, and so we've got off lightly is simply bad debts as galleries go bust and and galleries go bust owing you money and and there's not much you can do about it you feel sorry for them um but it's because of that lead time between them selling a picture and you getting paid which can be three months they Mm. might not have had enough other sales to pay the landlord so we've had about four galleries go bust and i feel very of course it's boring for us but i feel much more sorry for them Mm, sure okay well thanks again so much for your your time and your candor today it was very interesting to speak to you so um uh not at all and and, uh you don't have to put that bit in about the whale and the the hospital (laughs) oh that's i mean that's one of the key parts to go in i think yeah Yeah. absolutely i think yeah i think that's new i think i don't know if you said that before maybe you have but no that's fresh it's only because my therapy session's finished I'm allowed to go through it now it's good to talk David it's good to to (laughs) (laughs) talk alright thanks so much David and uh, yeah enjoy your time in Africa next week cheers Cheers, David bye